Well, good morning. My name is Ronnie. Uh, I'm the senior pastor here. If you are just now visiting us, it's a real pleasure to be with you. Uh, if you are maybe unfamiliar with um, the church calendar, we're in the season called Easter Tide. Right? We it's like Easter. You just add the word tide, and that represents the following weeks after Easter. And um, to kind of mark this sort of season, I thought we would just spend a couple weeks considering the resurrection and its implications together. Our passage that we just had read for us this morning picks up on the third day, just after Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And there's this cocktail or a mix of emotions in the disciples that just jump right off the pages to me. Namely, it is fear and great joy. You know, I can remember when I was a young kid, I lived in a house that was across the street from a cul-de-sac. And one of the houses in this cul-de-sac had been abandoned for some time. And all the neighborhood kids started rumors that it was haunted. I'm not sure why we said that, but one of the windows was broken and no one knew why. Now, I have two older brothers. They're like Irish twins, born in the same year, and I love them very much, but they sure enjoyed torturing me from time to time. And one of my brothers explained to me that he saw two red eyes inside this house, and he told me that I have to see it for myself. Now, it's getting dark, and I don't think I'm much older than five or six years old, but I against my better judgment, decided to go investigate with him. So we went, and we first peeked in the window in the front of the house, but my brother explained to me that it appeared that the eyes had moved to the back, and in order to see these strange red lights, I had to go back there, and this meant that we had to jump the fence against all the wisdom in the world and the neighborhood rules. And uh, now I'm getting nervous at this point, but my brother is leading me. And I see the window that my brother had referenced. It was, um, he told me to just walk over to it so I could like put my hands on the ledge and peek into it. Now the window was located towards the end of the house where is, um, it was like kind of like where a corner was. So I crossed over to it, I got up on my tippy toes, and I started staring deeply, intently into this dark window, wondering when I would see those ghost red eyes. Now the tension is at an all-time high for me, when all of a sudden, my other brother jumps out from around the corner and yells, boo. (laughs) My knees buckled, my heart stopped. I fell to the ground, I got back up, started running around as fast as I could, at which point both of my brothers started giving each other high fives and laughing, and I knew what had happened. As soon as I realized my brothers had played a prank on me just as quickly as there was fear coursing through my small little body, I also experienced this rush of joy and relief. And while my heart rate is still 200 beats per minute, it happened. I couldn't stop laughing, nervously, but laughing. And I was just joining in the laughter, cackling with my brothers. Now, I know why my brothers were laughing, 
because they scared me half to death. And I'm sure it was quite satisfying for them. But why was I laughing? And it was because my two older brothers, who I admired very much, carved out time of their day just to scare me with this elaborate plan, and they did it just because they could, just because they want to. And if my brothers could do that so effectively, then I sensed there was a whole lot about this big old world that I did not know much about. The possibilities coming out of that moment were endless. For my little boy heart, I can remember it like it was yesterday. And I'm sure that if you thought long and hard enough, you will realize that you too have experienced that same strange mixture of emotions at some point in your life, that beautiful mixture of fear and great joy. These two emotions are at the very center of the story that we just heard. Matthew tells us that something happened at the tomb where Jesus was buried, something seriously strange that it far overwhelms their ability to maintain their grip on the situation. Their knees probably buckled. But there's joy too because when they settle down, they realized that something happened there and the possibilities coming out of that moment were just about endless. And so I would, I would love for all of us this morning, no matter where we're coming from this Easter tide season, those who believe, those who don't believe, those who are just not sure what they believe, I would love for all of us to find our place beside those women at the tomb with that strange mixture of emotions of fear and great joy. Because when those two emotions are present, something more emerges. Hope. Hope in endless possibilities. So the way I'd like for us to study this passage this morning is by understanding and looking at these messengers. First, we're going to look at the, the women and the angels, the set of messengers. And then second, we're going to look at the 11 disciples, these men who would become messengers too. So let's begin first by closely looking at the, the women and the angels, this first set. Have you ever heard uh, the word methinks? Methinks? So methinks is this archaic word that uh, used to mean something like, it seems to me. Uh, we don't actually use that word anymore, and if someone did, uh, you would think they're being a little bit sarcastic or playful, or maybe just trying to relive their high school drama glee club days, but we don't use that word. In our text, we have another archaic word. It's the word behold. No one uses that word anymore, and if you did, you would think they're being a little bit playful, right? But there's nothing really playful going on in this passage, and let me explain. Matthew begins in our story, verse 1, telling us that it's after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. 
And I'll get to the men in our second point, but for now, they're not around because they are in complete disarray, off cowering, locked up somewhere. So they're not in the picture yet. We're just dealing with these precious women, one of which we know is Mary Magdalene, who had watched the crucifixion and stood by Jesus at the cross. And she had also been the one to know where Jesus was buried. And so it's no surprise that as soon as she was able and the Sabbath had ended, and as soon as the sunlight was falling on the otherwise gray and dark world, Mary Magdalene would be there. It's not explicit in this gospel, but we know from the other ones that she brought burial spices to care for Jesus' body in a very traditional way. Things had moved very quickly on Friday, um, and so she wasn't able to care for Jesus the way she had wanted. And so she had to wait in agony in order to give her rabbi, her deliverer, one final act of devotion. It's important to note the reason why these two women named Mary were there is because they expected that death did what death had always done. It closed the proverbial door that could never be opened again. These two precious women were there because their hearts were frozen in the tragedy of Good Friday. And so they were there with burial spices. Now, Matthew has collapsed the timeline, but he tells us in verse 2, and it probably happened right before the women arrived, or maybe at the same time, but that there was this great earthquake and that the angel had rolled back the stone and, in fact, was sitting right on top of it. Verse 3, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Have you ever been up close to lightning before? One time when I was doing survival training, lightning had struck the ground. This is my military days, but lightning had struck the ground. I don't know, maybe it's hard to remember, but maybe 50 or 100 yards, maybe more right in front of me. And um, it hit the ground that I was walking on, and you could actually feel it a little bit. And the color is brighter than white. It's not even what you think. It's like brighter than white. It almost even has this blue piercing color tint to it. It's, it's truly so bright that it invokes fear. Imagine light so bright with like blue edges but manifest in the shape of a man. That's what we have here. Matthew, of course, couldn't help himself as he writes. He tells us in verse 4 that the men who were there to guard a dead body became like dead bodies. That's kind of a nice touch there. It's understandable, I suppose, why these men would have feigned to be dead and why they got out as soon as possible, leaving these two precious women alone and this angel. Now, angels are not stupid. They know that they frighten people. You know, there's two kinds of angels in existence. There are holy ones and unholy ones, and they've been with us since the very beginning of time. And these holy angels shine so bright 
And it's a derivative light because presumably they have been in the presence of God Almighty and they shine like lightning. But even that is a fraction of the brilliance of God in whose presence they usually remain. A frighteningly bright angel says to these two unholy but precious women, verse 5, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And then the angel continues forming the scandalous and coherent center of the Christian faith. Verse 6, he is not here. He has risen, just as he said. And go now quickly to tell the disciples. And just like that, just like that, doors that they were so sure were closed and could never be opened again were broken wide open. The doors open, and not to just not, not just to the joy that these women feel that they get to see Jesus again, but doors into the fearful joy of a whole new world of hope. The doors that they were certain were closed forever are thrown wide open. And church, like we need to understand that the angel is not just saying that Jesus is alive, although if that were all the angel were saying, that would be amazing. But that's just the half of it. He's telling these women that Jesus has risen from the dead and he has punched a hole through death and has come through on the other side. He's telling them that death has been swallowed up and gutted forever. He's telling them that cold hearts can beat again. Now, I know that the women didn't fully have formulated all the theology that is happening, but they left filled with fear and great joy to tell the other disciples that they had an interaction with Jesus Verse 9, and then there's that archaic and strange word again, behold. Verse 9, behold, and Jesus met them and said, greetings. Like Jesus could have said anything. He could have said, look out for the victor who makes light work of death. He could have said something like, Adele, hello from the other side. But he said something beautifully ordinary. Greetings. He just greets them as friends with affection and love. And that's how he always comes to us. Even though we come assuming that Jesus is dead. Bringing burial spices. He's just so patient and kind. And we know that this women's theology was being formed so profoundly because they dropped, they dropped to the ground to hold his feet 
and to worship him, as it says in verse 9. Which this means, what this means is that they understood that Jesus was still truly physical. That they could grab his feet and wet his precious feet with their tears. That he is not a ghost or an apparition. He has a real body. And, his, and their real tears could mingle with his real feet. And although they had never once dropped to the ground to worship him before because worshiping a man was, was blasphemy and strictly forbidden by Jewish law, but in some untraceable part of their heart, they began to know precisely who Jesus is. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament would say that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And these women worshipped and grabbed his feet because their hearts knew exactly what time in history of mankind it was. Now I know that this might sound like just too much for some of you, maybe in this room, but please, please just try it on for size. Growing into the humans we were designed to be means listening to Jesus when he comes to you. These eyewitness accounts, these witnesses, they're here to fill our hearts with fear and great joy and by totally just troubling us with their testimonies so that we might have just a glimpse of what it's like when the certainty that we had of all these doors being closed starts to just unravel, if even for just a little bit. And Jesus comes to us in this ordinary but loving and affectionate way our fear and great joy is the foundation of hope. Because these things are real. These are true things. Solid things. These things, like the resurrection of Jesus, are being established, church, in this world. And all these things that we desperately want, well, he is making them happen. If we can believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then there is a whole lot about this big old world that we don't know much about. The possibilities coming from this moment, if you believe, are just endless. Hope. Hope. So, so far, we just looked at the messengers. First, the messenger of God, these this angel, and then we looked at these newly commissioned messengers, these precious women. But there's more. Let's turn our attention to this second, or this final group of messengers, these 11 remaining disciples. I mentioned this earlier, but the scene picks up with the disciples in complete disarray. They were cowering somewhere, fearing for their own skins. I imagine they were just caught up in the loss of a future that they had dreamed about, that, that, that they thought they were going to have one day. 
No doubt they're trying to just, I don't know, work through and deal with the shame that they feel over the fact that they cut and run on Jesus when things got bad. Their friend. You know, what kind of coping mechanisms do you have when you're dealing with shame? You know, some run to pornography or food. Some run to shopping. Others simply try to hide away from the world and clean themselves up. In whatever way you try to hide and deal with your shame, this story is pointing us to how the resurrected Jesus finds us in whatever place we're running to. You'll notice that in verse 7, this is incredible, the angel speaks to the women. When he speaks of them, he says, go quickly and tell the disciples that he's risen from the dead. And he's going before them in Galilee. The angel, you know, describes the 11 in a formal sort of way. These are, in fact, after all, the disciples of Jesus. But when Jesus meets and speaks with the women, he says something different, doesn't he? Look at verse 10. He says, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. Jesus does not say, go and tell those gutless cowards that I'm coming for them. He doesn't say, tell those deniers and betrayers they're off the team. No, he says, go and tell them that they're family. Go tell my brothers where to meet me. You know, Matthew, he's the author of this account. And I wonder, like, I just wonder what it was like for him to record this. I wonder if there were tears coming off of his cheeks, falling on the parchment in which he wrote this gospel. Just as he's like remembering this event, you know? In the middle of all this shame, like with the fire of treachery still burning in their hearts, the women somehow break into this room where these men have locked themselves in and explain, Jesus wants you to know that you are family. You are brothers. And do you know what this means? It means that failed disciples can be family again. It means that the resurrection of Jesus changes things in this very world. It means that failed disciples, people like us, can be forgiven because Jesus stepped in. It means that we are the beneficiaries of the restoration that Jesus embodies in his own resurrection. And church, this is like really important for you to hear this. The resurrection most certainly has implications for life after death, and that is so beautiful. But the resurrection of Jesus does things, and it accomplishes real things in our world, which means that there is so much hope. The galloping fear that is beneath all the evil powers in this world do not have the last word. You're 
your destructive anger that is part of so many conversations in your ordinary life does not have the last word. The violence that disfigures the face of our beautiful city does not have the last word. The racism, the sexual brokenness, the divorce that carves up the city and even our own hearts does not have the last word. And that means those of us who are living in the shadows of our past, haunted by the things that we cannot change, things that we have once done, things that paralyze us with shame, things, these addictions that feel like they have their claws in us inescapably deep, all of these things do not have the last word. The resurrection means that the doors that we were so certain were shut forever have been broken wide open. When Jesus speaks to the women and calls the disciples his brothers, he's telling them that broken lives can be restored. He's telling them that sins can be forgiven and shame, the shame can be rewritten into stories of freedom. And so it's beautiful to see what happens when the disciples actually lay their eyes on Jesus. Verse 16 and 17 say, Now the eleven disciples, they went to Galilee, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, and some doubted. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I imagine when Jesus saw him, he said something quite Ordinary, just like he did for those women. Greetings. Just enters into their story. Ordinary affection and love. That's how Jesus is always entering our stories. You hear me? That's how he's always entering our stories. There's never any need to get our stuff sorted out before he comes. Are all our intellectual doubts. And that's what's so beautifully strange about this story. The disciples fell to, their, to the feet of Jesus and worshiped, and some doubted, all at the exact same time. They were both faithful and unfaithful simultaneously. And isn't that like all of us? And this is like such good news. There is never any need to get through any of our biggest challenges first. Like, hey, if I can just deal with this one aggravating sin or this one doubt, I can finally just get back in line with Jesus. No, no. We never have all the answers figured out or some kind of spotless record in order for Jesus to come to us. And that's actually the point. He comes for the broken he comes for the scared. He comes for the divided heart. He even comes for the smug religious person who thinks they have it all together. Really, the love of Jesus is quite indiscriminate, isn't it? I imagine that they had that same mixture of emotions 
fear, and great joy. And that mixture of emotions opens the door for endless possibilities. And endless possibilities is the stuff that hope is made up of. Hope that Jesus' resurrection can break into this world in tangible ways. Justice and beauty, reconciliation, peace. These are not just dreams that we cling to so that we can make it through this chaotic world. These are real things. And the idea here is that these cowering men, these cowering men would become the messengers to the whole world. It was these scared, divided-hearted, hesitant men to whom Jesus says in verse 19, You go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in my name. And guess what? These cowering men believed it. They believed that justice and beauty and reconciliation and peace could break into our world because of the resurrection of Jesus. They really believed that Jesus did have all authority in heaven and on earth to make it so. They could feel it in their own burning hearts, even hearts that were riddled with shame, but they knew something new was happening and they just had to share it with the whole world. And what do you think they ended up sharing? I mean, what precisely would have been their message? Of course, it was the gospel of Jesus Christ, but there is a particularity to it, isn't there? The mess of the disciples was their message. Right? The, the, the disciple Mike, Matthew, excuse me, Matt. Matthew, he's the one who wrote this account, and he didn't whitewash all of the messy realities of the residual doubt in his own heart. He let the whole world know, and he recorded it so that every Christian would know for certain that the resurrection of Jesus broke into our world, into broken hearts for people like us with shame and doubt, simultaneously with faith, to make all Things new. And so, church, your mess is your message. We get to tell the whole world about the resurrection of Jesus and how it punched a hole through death, but how it also punched a hole through our shame and doubt. That the resurrection means something for us today. Not only when we die, but when we die, but when, but for this day too. I'll finish here. Many of you know the story of Joni Erickson Tata. If you don't, um, Joni is this um, lady. She grew up as a very athletic young lady. She's involved in all kinds of activities, to include like horseback riding, uh, something she loved very much. But when Joni was 19 years old, she dove into a pool that was too shallow, and she suffered a severe neck injury, and she became a quadriplegic. 
That was 1967, and Joni is still with us today. She is still a believer and still ministering to Christians all over the place. And she's been in a wheelchair for all of these decades. And if you see her, you will know that she is as lovely as ever. And I am certain that her impossibly beautiful countenance is tied to the beauty of her heart. So I saw an interview of her years ago. And the interviewer went out with her to this equestrian center. And it was this place that apparently she would visit very regularly. And the interviewer uh, asked her, you know, knowing that she has been a quadriplegic for decades, he asks, why do you still come out here? And she says, so I won't forget how. So that I won't forget how to run and jump with horses. See, to her, the resurrection does not mean a hopeful but abstract future presence or pleasantness. For her, the resurrection means that I am going to run and jump with horses again one day. There's like so much continuity with that future and her present life. And so she says, I don't want to forget how? Like, can you see how the future reality of the resurrection shapes us right now? Do you believe it? If you don't, would you just try it on for size? Fear and great joy is opening, is opening up a world of endless possibilities. And I pray that we become a church who sees our mess as our message and tells everyone who's willing to listen about our beautiful and resurrected Savior, who we belong to, who is making all things new, both in this life and in the next. Amen? Amen.